Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Do you remember when we recorded episode number one of the Intoxicated Podcast, Sherry? Um, well, I wasn't there, but I vaguely remember. You remember Jason and Jason, I working yeah. on it? Yeah. Seems like forever ago. Yeah, well, it kind of was. It kind of it kind of was forever ago. Well, so Jason, as many of our listeners know, some of you I'm sure are just like don't understand what happened because we did a terrible job of explaining it. But uh, Jason, after eight episodes, decided this was not for him and he wanted to pursue other things. And so he moved on and then I kind of floundered around on my own for a while until we recognized how great at podcasting you are, Sherry. And so you and I have been doing this together for the last, I don't know, 120 episodes out of the 148 that we've recorded so far. But anyway, it's been a long slog. It's been really fun. Have you enjoyed it? Mostly. Yeah. Okay. Mostly it's fine. Mostly it's fine. (laughs) What a glowing endorsement. Well, this is episode 148, which means we are only two away from a big milestone. Episode 150, coming up in two weeks. And we are excited. We, We announced this on last week's episode as well. But for episode 150, we will be recording live and in person a group of our friends from Echoes of Recovery, our program for the loved ones of alcoholics. We're getting the gang together for the first time ever in person. A small percentage of the gang. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. A dozen or so. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's good. But that's good. But yeah. We've got... We, we're well over... We're less than a quarter Well over a hundred, yeah. <laughs> a part of the gang. A part of the gang. But we're excited to have them together, and we will record and publish episode 150. So look for that in a couple of weeks. That should be a very special episode. And the advantage of doing it live over Zoom, well, I shouldn't have to explain that to anyone who's done anything over Zoom. Zoom's great. Uh, The technology that's available these days allows us to, to connect in ways that we were not able to connect in the past, but nothing beats being in the same room with somebody. Like right now, I'm in the same room with you. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. It's nice to nice to be talking to you today. Today we're going to talk about phases of relationship recovery. This is stuff that we've covered piecemeal in the past. I don't know that we've sat down and talked all the way through all the phases of relationship recovery. And I think it's really important because when we have questions from people, as we're working with people who are trying to figure this stuff out, Uh, there's, you know, we might work on one piece of it, like resentment processing, uh, or how do you rebuild trust? But we don't really paint the full picture all that often because it is such a long slog and one that has taken you and I years and we didn't do it right. So, cause we just didn't know what we were doing. So we were making it up as we were going along. And now that we have made it through to the point we've made it through to, we are in a position to share a better path through than the fledgling one that we chose. Why are you laughing at me already? Just when you said, you know, we did it all wrong. We, we did just, it now. All I'm like, wrong. we're still kind of making it up as we go. We're just learning what works for us 
you know, and that there was a rhythm to it and a and a pattern that you probably we yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say we're um you know what we like to say in our initial intake calls is we're not therapists, we're not trying to be, we're just Also know, not psychologists. Psychologists. We're just not really making it up as we go along, just sharing our experience. So. Sharing our that's right, because in addition to talking about it and living it, we also do a fair bit of research. Mm-hmm. We read and listen to what other people have to say. And a lot of the stuff that we cover is just not a topic that we can find information out there on. Yeah. The recovery for the alcoholic, tons and tons and tons of information. Recovery for the spouse, not so much. Recovery for the relationship, maybe even less. So, I don't know. I think, yeah. in a way, we're making it up as we go along. But we're proving the concepts, not only by our own personal experience, but with the help of the people that we are blessed to have in our lives that are working on it with us. So, phases of relationship recovery. Did you notice that I used the word phases? Um, yeah, because you said it a couple times. But yeah. is that different than what we've used in the past? I don't know. I'm just trying to avoid the word steps. Oh. Because... You don't want to... Yeah. I feel like steps has been taken in the recovery world. Yeah, and steps to make it seem like once you're done with that step, then you move on. But sometimes you backslide. You oh know? my Sometimes goodness. it's it's a kind of an intermediate, you know, step. Like you're kind of just and concurrent. Yes. You can be working on one at the same time as you're working on another. Yeah. Oh my God! It's like you were in our planning meeting, our pre-production <laughs> meeting for this episode. I never am. You never <laughs> are. But that's exactly so. Initially, I used the word phases instead of steps because I was trying to avoid the word steps. But did you have to use your um, thesaurus. To, thesaurus to see what's different. <laughs> no, I think if you thesaurus steps, it would talk about like elevation and climbing and. Okay. I I don't know. I don't know if there's anything. I don't know. Maybe we should do that, but we're not going to do it right now. But but no. Initially, I chose phases over steps because I'm a wimp and I don't want to use the word steps and have anyone compare us to the 12 steps. But that that's the other reason. That's what really has grown on me with the word phases. It is, they can be concurrent. You can be working on one thing while you're also working on something else. Mm-hmm. So I like phases better. And I feel like it's a movement because, yeah. you know, as we have often said in our um, groups when we talk with people that, you know, recovery isn't linear. That's necessarily, right. Necessarily. So I think phases is a great word. Yeah. Congrats M- on choosing a great word. Movement. I like that. It's like how, like when I look real hard at my hair, <laughs> there, it's not as thick as it used to be. So I'm in a different phase <laughs> of life. Yes. Or when I, when I try to stand up real quick, when I'm like bent over, that doesn't go as well as it used to. Different phase. Different phase of your life. Different phase of life. Not giving up yet, though. I'm not. I can tell. Still trying (laughs) with my hair and standing up. So, the the first phase that we want to talk about in the phases of relationship recovery is boundary setting and detachment. And I think this is a great starting point for anyone who is in the relationship in a relationship with someone who is an alcoholic. 
who is either drinking or even in early sobriety, there's still plenty of room for boundary setting and detachment. Can you give our listeners, like, what what does, after all the time that we've spent, not only working on our own, but talking with people about it, what, what does boundaries mean to you? How would you describe that? Different than an ultimatum, different than a rule that the other person has to follow. Mm. Um, That's important. It's a it's a rule. It's a guideline for yourself. Yes. A tangible example that we often hear is, I do not want to be around you while you're drinking. So I am going to remove myself from your presence and hopefully that that person who's drinking respects it. Um, another, as opposed as to as you opposed saying, you, you have to, to stop leave. drinking yes. or you need to Or get- you need to not drink and, you know the house necessarily. I know that that's one that sometimes we've heard, you know, no alcohol in the house. That is a, that's more of a rule versus a boundary. I'm not going to be around you while you're drinking. Now, maybe it's a separate part of the house and you're going to respect your space and you're going to totally respect my space. Yeah. I think a boundary about alcohol in the house can be, I'm not willing to live in a house that has alcohol in it. It's a a way you phrase it too. You've got to be prepared to you know that there's a that's a very loaded thing to say. I'm not willing to live in a house with alcohol in it. That could mean separation. It could mean getting an apartment. It could mean divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still an I statement. It's something you can control, or I can control. If I say I'm not willing to live in a house with alcohol in it, then I'm telling you I'm going to make the necessary changes to make sure that I don't have to be in a house with alcohol in it. Mm-hmm. So. Boundary work's not easy, that's for sure. No, and I I didn't have a clue, you know, about the differences between boundaries versus rules versus ultimatums. Yeah. You, like most people, like almost everybody, maybe everybody, initially, were, your attempts to make things better was to try to control my drinking, to try to harass me into stopping drinking or slowing down or drinking less or, you know, whatever the case may be. It was, it was a 10 year battle. So there was probably a little bit of all of that and one ultimatum that I remember, Mm -hmm. but yeah. And all of that was ineffective and frustrating for you to experience, right? Trying to control my drinking. Yes. And I also feel like you did not add the word guilt. I tried to guilt you into abstaining or moderating because I am... Very good at guilt. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yes, you know, I would show you these sad scenes and scenarios and, you know, and, you know, so there was a lot of trying to guilt you in or maybe even partially shaming you into moderating or abstaining from drinking. And I would say it was longer than the 10 years that you were in active addiction and trying to quit. I, I think that a lot of those things were things that crept up early on when I was dismissing the red flags. So then I was trying to control it, but not to the great extent that I was in the uh, later years. So it just, it was, you know, creeping in and creeping in and creeping in. I think that's fair. And I think one of the reasons that guilt came easily to you is because you are naturally someone who feels guilty. So you know, you talk about trying to guilt me, but but you experience a lot of guilty feelings yourself. Yeah, and I would transfer my guilt of not providing a safe, healthy, happy home for our kids to you. Yep. 
Absolutely. So that was an easy, easy thing for you to do. Not easy, but a direct thing. Yes. A, a, it seems a, like a very sense. logical there you go. thing for me to do to, to unburden my some of my guilt. Even though, sadly, it's completely ineffective. Controlling the drinker, trying to control the drinker in any way, guilt, pressure, you know, ultimatums. It just absolutely doesn't work. The other, you know, this in, in this initial phase, the other thing that a person can work on is detachment. And one of the things that we've learned, again, through both experience and working with others, is that, you know, detachment is one of those things, one of the many things in this topic of alcoholism and recovery that, you know, you'll know when you're ready or, you, you know, you can't, you can't read in a book what detachment is. You can't listen to my description that I'm giving right now about what detachment is and then just do it. You have to be ready for it. And mm-hmm. when we talk about detachment, it's emotional detachment initially, can eventually be physical detachment. Some people like to use the word detach, detach with love. I'm not a fan of the with love part because I feel like that was just somebody's way of trying to sell the idea. So, you know, detach. Ooh, that sounds mean. I'm going to detach from my... But he's still my husband. I still love him even though he's a drunk. I still love him. I don't want to detach. Well, you can detach with love. Oh, okay. Now I'll do it. Yeah. I feel like it was a sales tactic. I, I, don't, I don't think it was you know, meant to be mean or to be pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. I just don't understand what the, the with love is. When you detach from yeah. someone, you are emotionally removing yourself from their life as much as possible. Well, and I think it kind of falls under that umbrella of disciplining with love. Okay. You know, oh, okay. I mean, when you th- think about with maybe chi- with children. where the detaching with love oh, yeah, okay. kind of comes from more of those religious-based um, programs, perhaps. And there is that disciplining with love. Yeah. You know. Um, I think that's fair. And I think that, you know, because that's fairly biblical. Yeah. I mean, you know, I read a lot of children-rearing books and sort of stuff. Was, the kids were young, so I remember, you know, discipline is a form of love. Yeah. You know, you're, you're guiding and shaping. And so I think that it's kind of comes from that, but I think you're right. It just was one of those market employees because really... When I was detaching, I was pissed. Yeah. I was done. I, 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 there was no love. I mean, there was love, but there wasn't like. Yeah, which is super important. Yeah. When it comes to rebuilding a relationship, love is like the foundation, but like is the actual structure. You have to like the person to want to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And we reached a point where you didn't like me. Right. You stuck around for practical reasons. Yes. For financial reasons. Because our lives were intertwined and because there was love still there, but you didn't like me. Mm-hmm. And that made detachment, emotional detachment, easy for you. You didn't want to hear my new plan for my drinking moderation, the new rules I was going to put around my drinking because you just didn't give a shit anymore. Right. And this wasn't something that it was a five years. Right. You know, this was over a many, many years, 15. And so that's why plus. it's that's why it's so important. That when people hear about detachment and go, okay, I'm going to try that. It's not that easy. You don't just read about it in a book or hear us talking about it and go, okay, sounds like a good idea. I'm, I'm in. You, you have to get there. You, ha- you, you, have to, you have to get yourself to the point where you're willing to do what it takes to detach. Now, 
you know, I don't want to underplay the importance of detachment. For us, it was one of the two things that got me sober. Your detachment and me realizing that you were really pulling away along with the depths of my depression and anxiety and realizing I didn't have any alternative. Alcohol, quitting alcohol was my only choice to fix both of those problems. And I think that when I was emotionally detaching, that's when I had more boundaries set for myself. I didn't, again, didn't realize I was doing it, never had researched, mm-hmm. didn't have any idea what I should be doing. Um, but that's when I was like, okay, you are not going to live like this, Sherry. Yeah. You're going to, you know, so I had a boundary for myself was, I don't want to engage with him when he's drinking. Mm-hmm. I didn't tell you that because it wasn't for you to know. Yeah. It was just for me to act on. So then that was, I think, a detachment and boundary combined. Yeah. That's why I like that word phases because they were com- being combined. Yeah. And I didn't have any idea at the time that I was doing it, but looking back and after we've learned what the processes are, that's kind of what I was doing. Yeah. Absolutely. And that in in this that's why I think both of these things are in this initial phase. You can work on your boundaries and you can work on detachment simultaneously. You kind of need to. Boundaries are the kind of thing that you can Read about, learn about, hear about, and and figure out what they are. Because your boundaries can change. Your initial boundary might be, uh, if you have more than two beers, I, I don't want to be around you. Um, or if you go out with your friends and come home, I'd like you to sleep. Or I- I'm going to sleep in a different room than you're going to sleep in. So, And then that might change. It might get to the point where I can't be in the same house with alcohol. Boundaries can change. And you can start right now. If you've listened to this podcast, you're brand new at this. And you want to set a boundary. You can you can put this on pause and you can write two or three boundaries right now that you're going to employ in your life. And they, knowing that they might change over time. Detachment's different. Detachment takes commitment. It takes experience. It takes being at the place where you're, you're, you're fed up and you're done. Because yeah. if you try to detach, and we've, we, we've seen it often where people, okay, I know what detachment is. I'm going to try that. If you try to detach and you're not there yet... Um, it's just it's just not an effective technique. Well, and, and every relationship and every person is different. So I think that um, that if you were to detach and it was too early, there would be this, and I'm speaking for myself, I would have guilt that I had like given up on you so quickly. I hadn't exhausted all of my resources. Yeah. I hadn't exhausted all of my plans. Yep. And I think that's where you get to the point of detachment. When you have exhausted everything, being in that caretaker role, and I hate the word codependent, but having your lives intertwined, having you know children, you're, you're trying to do everything you can to problem solve. But I think if you detach too early, then there's going to be this what if, what if, what if, yep. or guilt feeling. That's... I'm really glad that you talked about you've got to have exhausted everything else because this this phase one is huge. This phase one is probably years long for most people. Because remember, these are the phases of relationship recovery. Mm -hmm. Phase one is when you're just trying to put the brakes on to stop it from continuing to go downhill. You're not actually fixing anything. You're trying to stop it from making it get, you know, from it getting worse. So while the loved one is getting to the point where they've exhausted everything else and they're ready to detach. The same holds true for the drinker. 
you know, the only reason people make significant changes in their lives, and I, this is something that I learned from Jason, who was the original co-host of the podcast with us way back, way back in the first eight episodes. The only reason that somebody makes significant changes in their lives is because they're in so much pain that change is the only feasible alternative. They have to be in so much pain that it, it's not good enough that you as my spouse are in pain or that my kids are in pain. I personally have to be in enough pain. So the whole phase one, we've primarily talked about the loved one, the spouse, but just to hit on it real quickly, phase one for the drinker is that usually years, sometimes decades long period where you're getting to the point where you have run out of options. You've realized that there's no rules you can put around your drinking. You have crossed the line into addiction and it is over and you're coming to grips with with the fact that it's over. So phase one is reaching the point where the pain of drinking is significant. It's more than the pain of sobriety. Because make no mistake about it, if you're the loved one, you probably don't understand this. Sherry, I know this is something you didn't understand for a long time. But sobriety is painful when you are that committed to alcohol and alcohol is that big a part of your life. See, when you get to the point where the pain of sobriety is less than the pain of continuing to drink, that's when you can find sobriety. So, Phase one's huge. I'm glad we spent a good, a significant amount of time on it because it's big and it, it's years long. But again, these are the phases of relationship recovery. So we've put the brakes on. We've found sobriety. Um, let's talk about what, what I would consider the second phase um, in relationship recovery. The drinker is in sobriety and is doing all the things around that very early sobriety period. If you're a 12-stepper, you're going to lots of meetings. If you have a different program, you're following whatever that program is. Maybe you're in a 30-day inpatient rehab. Maybe you're doing an IOP. Uh, Maybe you're doing Shout Sobriety, which is our program. But you're really, you know, the selfishness continues, right? We've talked about this a lot. But just because you get sober doesn't mean you're suddenly selfless. You continue to be selfish, and you have to be. You have to focus on sobriety. You have to beat the physical addiction. You have to learn new patterns. You have to learn new techniques. You have to understand brain chemistry. You have to do all that work, what is always called the work of recovery. And so that's where you are as the drinker in phase two. As the spouse, you need a chance to focus on yourself. This is one of the many phases that you and I missed. We didn't understand that you needed to work on yourself. And so we were years into our recovery process before you actually focused on yourself. And what did that look like for you, focusing on yourself? Um, I had started an individual therapy and uh, did a little bit more research and on recovery and learning some of the terminology that I'd seen out there because then I was no longer afraid to search the internet mm-hmm. and find and you find my history that was a concern. Um, so I really kind of avoided doing any research like that. Um, I also tried to understand a little bit about alcoholism. Um, and I really have to say, I didn't necessarily mind most of the time you being in that selfish phase because again, I was done with you and if you just left me alone and you did your own thing, fine. Um, so I had to learn that alcoholism, sobriety was selfish So I just really kind of educated myself um, because you had been trying this for a long time. I 
begrudgingly did listen to you a little bit <laughs> about some things you would share with me. And then I would go and I would kind of try to confirm that a little bit using internet searches. And, you know, yeah. so I think that was... This is something that once, once or even like you said, these phases can can um, overlap each other. Once or even before the drinker is in sobriety, well, definitely before. If if you're if you're able to get there, we really encourage the loved ones to start focusing on themselves. Find therapy like you did. Do the research. Start to learn. Find a group. Maybe Echoes of Recovery is a good fit for you. But. We, there was a big gap between my initial sobriety and when you started looking into yeah. how to help yourself. And it was it was the same gap that we hear lots of people talk about. It was because you and I both thought, it's my problem. I've got to fix it. I've got to get sober. I know I was more optimistic than you were that sobriety would fix everything. But that was definitely the starting point And that's all either of us were focused on for a long time. Yeah. Matt's got to get sober. You know, you even when you didn't like me and you're like, fuck you, Matt, mode, you're still not working on anything. You're just sitting over here stewing and being angry. Yeah, and I guess somehow I thought magically that sobriety and time would start to, you know, melt away the shell that I had created of, of you just staying in my anger. And resentment. And resentment. And I, you know, and I tried to feed in because I also will say I'm... I, I thought, you know, well, I know there's been a lot of pain and hurt and anger over the years, but once I see him sober and happy and and being fun and jolly and, you know, mm-hmm. caring and considerate, then all of that will just go away. But it didn't because it took you a while to get to be those things that I was describing. And I just was stuck and stewing and okay. still hurt. And it's not that I wanted you to hurt. I just didn't know if you hadn't understood. Because I didn't understand that I needed to get that out. Get some of those pain and hurt out. That's why I have so much admiration for a lot of the people that are in our Echoes of Recovery program. Because we have people in our group that are their loved one is well over a year sober. We have people in our group that have divorced their loved one. But they recognize that they still need help because they're still stuck. Even when alcohol is out of your life, whether it's out of your life because the person you're with stopped drinking or you, you've separated from the person who had the drinking problem, even with alcohol out of your life, you're not in the clear. Mm-hmm. You've got work to do on yourself. And, and that's what a lot of these phases are about. That's a lot what a lot of this work is about. It's about working on yourself, becoming a stronger you, and then the relationship as a chance at health. So that that piece, I mean, I just can't encourage people enough. If you are the loved one, roll up your sleeves and start working as early as you possibly can. Like I said, even before sobriety if you can because it's a long it's a long haul. Alcohol has a huge impact on the people around alcohol, not just the person consuming it. Yeah, and I I want to go back and say I know I said detachment kind of takes a long time because for me I had to get angry and frustrated and exhausted that doesn't mean that you can't start working on yourself if you're like you mentioned like yeah. if it's if it's a problem for you and you feel like your partner's drinking is a problem you can start working on yourself 
to be a better you, have more self-confidence. And I think the more you have the self-confidence you'll be and loving yourself, you'll be able to speak up for yourself and have, and I think that once you exert that confidence to your partner, they may not bat it down as much because, you know, alcohol I think is manipulative. So there's lots of manipulation that goes on and it's not, the drinker isn't aware that it's happening. But I think if you have self-confidence, they're going to, it's going to shine through yeah. and they're going to notice, oh, wow, this is a different person. So it doesn't, ha- I mean, I know I'm kind of backtracking, but what? detachment takes a while, but working on yourself can start at any time. I don't think you're backtracking at all. I think it makes a ton of sense. And maybe you have, maybe you can avoid some of the nasty detachment and the angry feelings about it if you start working on yourself and then... Your partner is realizing, oh, things are not going in the direction that I would like to with my alcohol relationship. Yeah. You know, so, and I want to be with my spouse. You know, I'm glad you brought up self-confidence because that is absolutely the antidote for both the drinker and for the spouse. When when we can build some self-esteem, we can move out of all of these stuck places. When you can learn to listen to your instincts and and dismiss your insecurities because the gaslighting and the manipulation, it's all about pouring fuel on your insecurities. And the better you feel about yourself, the more confidence you have, the better you are to withstand that attack and know that you're right and not second guess yourself and Mm -hmm. just keep moving forward. And that's what the work of recovery is all about. Frankly, for both sides of the street, the drinker and the the loved one. Um, the, The third phase Again, these are can be overlapping phases. It doesn't have to happen sequentially, but I but this is something that you and I have just in the last maybe year and a half, two years, have really inserted into this process as important, and that's mourning. It is important to mourn the loss of what you had planned in your head. This doesn't mean necessarily you know people think of mourning and they think of death. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, you know, when you walk down the aisle with this person, you had some kind of vision of what happily ever after was going to look like. And if you are listening to this podcast, uh, guess what? It's not happily it ever after. It didn't work out that way. <laughs> so anyone who's been in an alcoholic relationship has been thrown a huge curveball and is way off the path from happily ever after. And you can get stuck just being mad about that. Mm-hmm. Easily. And feeling sorry for yourself. Stuck. Yeah. So going through a process of mourning, admitting out loud to yourself and even to others, if if you can be so bold as to do that, that this is not what I had planned for my life. This hasn't worked out. And allowing yourself the space. It sounds kind of corny, I guess, but I, I've just grown to believe it's super important to allow yourself the space to say, this wasn't the plan. And uh, I'm sad about it. And and sit with that. Be sad about it for a while. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to quantify a while. Again, this is not something that you and I did particularly well. Um, we didn't do it sequentially. We didn't do it right. immediately. But how do you feel about the importance of mourning what, what you hoped had, was going to happen? Has it helped you? I think so. And, I, and I, I know that you said it doesn't necessarily mean death. But I think it did mean... Like the squashing of expectations or mm-hmm. dreams or an idea of what you had. Yeah. So, 
I think it was helpful to say, you know, this isn't what I anticipated. And I'm sure your alcoholic partner would say, yeah, I didn't anticipate this either. Yeah. You know, both of you didn't anticipate this and expect this, whether they're fighting you on sobriety or they're in a, you know, 60-day inpatient struggling mightily with sobriety. Um, and I think that depending on where you are, it's something you could also do together. Mm-hmm. Um kind of sharing your thoughts of, of mourning. I hadn't really thought about it until it was brought up to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was very healthy. Because sometimes I can get stuck in the feeling sorry for myself and angry. And I think it helped me move past that anger. And then to also say, but death is part of life. Yeah. And so changes. So moving into a different phase of life and a different stage of life. One thing that's a universalism in this whole recovery process is, and when we say universalism, we, we just, we don't have scientific evidence or proof that it happens every time, but it happens often enough that it's basically universal. And And that is that people who experience alcoholism and are successful in recovery will say, almost universally I hated it I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy but I'm glad that I went through it because of the person that it's made me Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons that I think this mourning phase is so important you can't go back and start over and for most if not all of us we don't necessarily want to I don't want to go back to who we were when we were 20 when I was 21 years old and I met you that that person was dumb and I'm afraid he'll make similar mistakes. Even if it's not drinking, it'll be something else dumb. So I am very thankful for the knowledge that I have now that I never had before because I think it makes me a better husband and a better man and a better father. And I don't want to be a dumb person again. So in order to process, and and it's not just the alcoholics that say that, the loved ones say it as well. I am much wiser for having experienced this. So in order to maintain the knowledge that you have having experienced it, but still acknowledge that it was painful and awful, you've got to mourn what happened as opposed to just wishing it didn't happen and wishing you could make it all go away. Mm-hmm. So the morning, morning phase is really, really important. Um, the next phase, now we're getting into some kind of concrete things that you can do. And the, the next phase, you're, you're in sobriety, you've been in sobriety for some period of time, you've mourned the loss of what you thought you were going to have. Now you've got to process those resentments. Resentment processing is not accomplished through the 12-step uh, process where you make amends. The amends, you know, we that's a whole other topic that we can debate, but the amends are... F- for the drinker or the substance user who is apologizing to people, but it's for the good of the user, the drinker. It's not actually doing much for the recipient of the amends in most cases. In in many, many cases, that's a very hollow feeling to have someone come and apologize to you and then make that, that you know, I just cleaned off my hands motion and say we're good right and walk out turn around and walk out there done i never want to talk about that again by the way i'm out of here and i don't even remember um if an amends 
in the 12 step program or like celebrate recovery because they kind of have a 12 step thing. I can't remember if, if even like writing letters and so then it's just one sided. Like you said, I can't remember if writing letters is an option or an email. I think it is, yeah. And so it's very one-sided. And yeah. it's it's sort of a protection, I think, to keep the user who's in that stage of sobriety, to keep them from dealing with the backlash. And that's what made me angry about it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what resentment processing is, since it's not that. It's not the amends process. And don't let a 12-stepper tell you, I made amends. I don't ever want to talk about this again. You you should be good now. That's not fair because you haven't processed your... Processing resentments, it's for the relationship, but it, it is primarily, I think, for the loved one, for the spouse. And it is, you know, the drinker often has... Uh, periods of blackout, periods of brownout, just hazy memories because that's what alcohol does. Alcohol impairs our ability to remember. And so as the loved one, when you've been through traumatic experiences with this drinker, many of those experiences are just seared into your permanent memory. And if, you know, in our case, the day after, I would often debate your version of reality. Oh, it wasn't as bad as you're saying it was. You were being a bitch. It's your fault. Things like that. As opposed to really owning, yeah, I drank way too much. I started it. I said these awful things. Now, I'm a big fan, and you are too, of blaming the disease. So rather than me saying, I said these things, I drank, you know, I, we could say the addict drank too much. The, the disease made me do it. I, I think it's important not to just shame the drinker into you know oblivion mm-hmm. um, by blaming them for everything, but, it's but still the does. fact is, here's the set of things that really actually happened in in reality. And as the drinker, I what didn't have access to the truth because my memory was foggy. You had a lifetime's worth of access to the truth because these memories got seared into you. And so resentment processing is your opportunity to share the truth with me. And have me acknowledge it. And that's what's important. It's not important for me to apologize for the millionth time. My apologies by this point in the saga were completely meaningless to you. Because I just kept repeating the actions. So your resentment processing was about you speaking your truth and me acknowledging that it happened the way you said it happened. Mm -hmm. And that was vital for you. Yeah. Um, I think... Two, it was, you know, sometimes when you when you share the truth, I think I mentioned the way I described it was because I'm kind of unburdening myself yes. of those memories. So you're helping carry the load. Yes. Um, because I didn't want to be the only one that had that knowledge. And I had to wait. We had to wait for a time when you could be accepting of hearing it because you've always been really good about apologizing and, and taking ownership and accountability for things. And when we say blame the disease, we're not saying, oh, well, you know, I am, yes, you're not that person when you're sober, but you're the one that's choosing to drink because your physiology and your brain chemistry or your brain is like you have to to drink to be happy. So you are really good about blaming the disease, but also taking accountability and not pushing it off and accepting that this is what the disease does. 
to both of us. Yeah. So you had to be at a phase where you could be very accepting of hearing that because, again, for years you tried to brush it off and make it like I'm blowing out a portion or I'm manipulating the truth because your memory is foggy. Yep. And and perhaps I'll admit that probably some of it was a little bit of like back in the day, like when I would try to recount what happened. You know, I try to tug at your heartstrings, mm-hmm. and I get emotion much more emotional about things because I wanted you to see the the pain that had happened. And we are, and humans do retain bad memories more than we hold on to good memories. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's survival mm-hmm. instinct. So. You know, there could, there has to be a, a point when the addict is able to hear, yeah, and be accepting of it and not be defensive about it. Well, and not just be wallowing in such a deep pit of shame that you can't, you can't hear the truth yet. Yeah, you can't hear the truth yet. I'm not, I'm not strong enough. Now, don't let your alcoholic in recovery tell you that for five years yeah because uh, you're never going to move forward until right. you process the resentments that's why i like anna and mitchell's we are recovery pops into my mind for that scenario when you're sitting there and you're having these resentment conversations there's the partner there's the addict and then there's the you know the other partner the other partner the two the spouses sober. in the attic there's three yeah, people so there's three people so there's you know it's a it sober person the, the attic the partner, so then you can say, well, that, you know, kind of happens as a different identity. You can be accountable as the addict for the actions, mm-hmm. but you aren't to blame and be blamed and shamed. Yeah. Because it was the disease, so have that, you know. I'm glad you talked about sharing the burden. I'm glad you talked about how having the truth be acknowledged by both spouses in the relationship allows it not to just all live in your head. Now we both share the the detailed knowledge of what happened and you know we carry that together I acknowledge that it happened you don't feel like you're crazy and we both carry the knowledge so we can hopefully work together to prevent it from happening ever again so Mm -hmm. sharing the burden is a really important way and a really important thing and I'm, I'm glad you talked about it the way we accomplished resentment processing I think at the beginning there was just some kind of, you know, a lot of it spilled out. But but then we did pick a kind of systematic, logical, um, scheduled way to do it. We set time aside, and we still do this, once a week. Right now you and I meet on Sundays, Sunday afternoons. And it's not important what day of the week it is. It is important that both of us have it on the calendar. We can adjust the time a little bit, like if someone's got to run one of the kids somewhere, church runs long, or whatever. The time doesn't have to be the exact time, but every Sunday afternoon, we have blocked out time where we are going to spend it together. Often we go on a walk, and that's how we process resentments. If the weather's bad, sometimes we sit on the front porch, or we sit, we try to find a quiet room in our tiny little house where other ears aren't listening. But we spend time processing resentments and it's it's just I can't emphasize enough how important these weekly meetings are, and we just encourage everyone to find this practice. One of the real benefits of setting aside the time, prioritizing it, is you're telling your partner, okay, it's on my calendar, it's on your calendar, great. I'm not going to blow it off because it's on my calendar. That means 
I'm making you a priority. And it's so easy in a relationship, especially when there's jobs and there's kids, to just blow each other off and not make a priority there. The other thing it does is it mentally prepares you, okay, I'm probably going to hear some tough stuff that's hard to hear. I'm going to brace myself. I'm going to get ready. I mean, this is better than waiting until, you know, pushing it down until it boils over. And then all of a sudden we're screaming at each other mm-hmm. and we don't even know why, you know, how, what, what started this fight. That's not a healthy way to process resentments. The healthy way is to prepare yourself. Know you're going to hear some things that are going to be hard to hear. Not fire back. That's useless. That's just making matters worse. And, you know, f- being thankful that you and your partner are both willing to spend the time dedicated to each other to to have the difficult conversations. And you don't have to, you know, as the alcoholic, it's not just about me saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's not just about me solving the problem, which is what I tried to do at the beginning. It's just listening. Mm-hmm. Humans are n- notoriously shitty listeners. Right. And I was going to say, along with the lines of being terrible listeners... Also, there is that real strong desire to become defensive or mm-hmm. question. And that just puts doubt in the mind of the loved one. Yes. It, 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 so it's almost, I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to say that asking questions is gaslighting, but it is questioning their truth. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit manipulative, a little bit gaslighting. And it just makes you have doubt. Mm-hmm. So it's really important, I think, for the addict to just sit and listen. Mm-hmm. And then maybe at the end, and after the crying is resolved and you've gained composure, try to hold on to your question. Don't just sit there and memorize it in your head over and over so you're not listening. But yeah. then maybe Which there can be a small good. discussion of the resentment. And the situation that happened. But questions that don't make that person, the loved one, doubt themselves. Yeah. Because that's their truth. Those are their feelings. And it's not just a one-sided tongue lashing for the alcoholic either. Yeah. I, I, You have always done a really good job of giving me an opportunity to share what I feel resentful about or what's troubling me. And so it's a it's a two way conversation. It's not when it's it, when, and early on when we tried to do this, we tried to do this while you were still drinking. Mm-hmm. So we had to do this in our conversations and our scheduled time. So then I was prepared to be respectful. Mm-hmm. If it was something that just out of the blue, I'm cooking dinner and then you were like, "Hey, this really aggravated me." Blah blah blah. I'd be like, "What the fuck?" You know? Yeah. Like I, that I, that just I wasn't in a frame of mind. Yeah. So even as the loved one, I could become yeah. defensive. So it has to be in that kind of that scheduled respect time so then you're mentally prepared. Yeah, absolutely. Really important. Can't emphasize enough how important that is. The next phase that we want to talk about, I don't know that the numbers are important, but the fifth phase on my list is the kids. Got to make room for the kids. We, the way we handled my active alcoholism is we tried not to have big, you know, rip roaring fights in front of the kids. We argued late at night. We argued. We go in another room and argue quietly. Whisper, whisper, yell at each other. Um, and so, my impression of the damage that we did to the kids was incorrect when I got sober. I thought we had largely shielded um, our shielded the kids. I think the number was five. I think I could come up with, and with your help. 
We could come up with five really traumatic experiences that the kids had witnessed, which is a lot now that I think about it, right? But at the time, I was proud. Oh, it's only five times when we've wrecked their lives. Right. But so there's that. There's the really traumatic outward outbursts that they witness. But there's also the... Daily uncertainty and yeah. daily chaos, small little chaos and and just that tension that they feel yeah. in the air and you're in a bad mood I'm in, I'm yeah. in a bad mood nobody and, knows why yeah or then they're like oh you know let's go ask dad no don't ask don't ask dad that just talk to me you know so then I was yep. the intercessor between you all and don't go to ask him now you know or oh I would just stay away from dad right now so it was that level of like not feeling comfortable in their own home yeah. and feeling safe in their own home so what we did as a first step, and this was well into my sobriety, probably too far into my sobriety, should have done it earlier, was we sat down with our four kids and we talked about the five things that we had come up with that were really traumatic experiences. I owned them. I apologized for them. You know, I acknowledged them. And then we gave each of our kids a chance to talk and share how they felt, how they felt about alcohol, how they felt about me, how they felt about you. And it was probably the most emotional experience of my life that hour and a half or however long we all sat in the living room and had that conversation. And it was interesting. I think it has to do with the different ages of our kids for sure, but it also has to do with their personalities and just what they experienced as individuals because some of our kids were very emotional couple of our kids wanted to yell at me and and that they needed to and that felt good to them in the moment and again important my reaction I did not fire back I did not get defensive I just sat and listened um some of our kids were really quiet I remember I mean it's still one of the sweetest images our our second oldest held our oldest's hand while she yelled and um the second oldest didn't have much of anything to say um, but he was very emotional. I mean, he this clearly impacted him, but it was like she was speaking f- for the family at the time, and he that's how he wanted it. And, you know, our youngest was shielded from a lot of it, not because we did a good job shielding, but because he was just too young to understand what too was going on. Too young to process, but it has affected him. Yeah. You know, it's the unspoken stuff. Yeah. That tension, that anxiety. Yeah. That our house was filled with has really affected them and you know also personality wise you know that plays into it but you know they're all affected they were living in an environment that was never meant to be for living in yeah absolutely so it changed who they were supposed to be absolutely so, you know, we're very good about asking our kids if they want therapy, trying to talk to them, trying to be open and honest. And I know that teenagers don't want to share. So maybe later in life, you know, like our oldest is 20. And I think she's recognizing that she needs to speak with someone and maybe they'll do it later in life. And I feel like even if it's later in life, it's my responsibility as a parent to pay for that therapy because we're the ones that did the damage. 
Um, because sometimes it just doesn't show up right away or it shows up in ways that you don't even know. So one thing that, like, besides that conversation, I feel like we kind of dropped the ball on, like, following up and recognizing what are <clears throat> signs of an adult child, adult child of an alcoholic or a child of an alcoholic. And so we let that happen for a while, but then we had to revisit it just in behaviors that were brought up and things as we were learning. Um, you know, because me being a child of an alcoholic, I would, you know, there is a lot of information and I would be like, oh my gosh, that's totally a trait that our kids have as young teenagers. Yeah. You know, so that's something that you need to keep tabs on and investigating. And even if your children are adults, they still need to be able to, to process or yell at the parents for having some screwed up childhood. I think. I couldn't agree more. Some of the, the traits and characteristics of adult children of alcoholics are logical. They make sense. You know, one of the common attributes is, is trying not to rock the boat, right? Well, just, I'll just, I'll, I'll suffer as long as it doesn't cause conflict. Yeah, or I'll that, take care of everybody as long as it, you know, it doesn't cause conflict. Like, that, you know the, right where that's coming from. Being but, a parent. But some of the attributes of adult children of alcoholics are less logical and less obvious. So, like, like our, our oldest, and I'm not trying to pick on her, but she shared with us that she was telling little white lies that didn't, like, there was no purpose behind them. Like, she told a group that she was meeting for the first time that she was big into tennis. She's never played tennis in her life. Well, she did take a, a summer of tennis lessons, but she had always been oh, a soccer. Did? Yeah. Well, those were during your drinking day, so you didn't know. They but she was young. She was, Yeah, she was like in late elementary or middle school. But All right, so as an eight-year-old, she took one summer of tennis, mm-hmm. but primarily she had never yes. played tennis, and she told someone that she did, and it wasn't like, there was status involved. It wasn't like everyone else was a tennis player and this was going to elevate her in the group. It was, and because she, she shared it with us and she's like, I don't know why I told them I played tennis. But it didn't gain me yeah. anything. And then, you I know. I wasn't trying to manipulate anyone. I don't know why. But that, we looked into it and that is a very common, those little white lies for no particular yeah. reason is a very common trait of adult children of alcoholics. So, so yeah, making yourself aware of what those are and better prepared as a parent to handle them is a really good idea but you know I want to emphasize that beyond that initial 90 minute meeting when everyone got to express their emotions we have done our best to remain an open door and to follow up and to have conversations with the kids and talk about their future drug and alcohol use we you know you could say that Sometimes we maybe have gone too far, or I have gone too far. We made the kids watch a documentary on the dangers of pornography because it's different than when we were kids. When we were kids, maybe you found, you know, one of your friend's dads had some Playboys, and that was pornography. And now pornography is free anal sex that you can watch on your phone, you know, when you're, you know, 11 years old or whatever. So it's it's awful what kids are can can be exposed to like I said for free um it's just they're inaccessible and so we made the kids I made the kids watch a documentary about it and it was tough it was a documentary that was very respectfully there was no pornography in the documentary yeah by Lisa Ling 
Yeah, it was a CNN. CNN. And then it's very thing. respectful. But because we were talking about addiction, and, and there are a lot of people who have co-addictions, mm-hmm. subsequent addictions, yeah. even after they've stopped drinking alcohol, they find something else to replace that. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we were kind of sharing was even if you decide not to do mind altering like substances, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of other addictions, gambling, you know, shopping yeah. or self-harm. So we, we've tried to, you know, maybe overdid it, but I feel like I would kind of rather them have too much information than go out there totally naive yeah, keeping the conversation going. It's not just a one-time sit down, let them cry and get it out of their system, and then I don't ever want to talk about this again. Yeah, got to keep the conversation going. Well, so that's important. Something and, that just keeps perpetuating a, a bad cycle and keeping yeah. the secret and makes them feel like they can't talk about it. Like I don't know how many of our kids and how much they say to their friends about what we do for a living and that you're, uh, you know alcoholic in recovery and because you know i'm sure they do get some questions about alcohol use and i know their kids are exposed to it so i'm always curious like what do they say like i don't think i'm going to touch the stuff right now because i got like genetic components and family history of of alcoholics on both sides of my family that i have to really be careful about and i you know i would be kind of curious to ask what they say i've heard our youngest say oh my dad's an alcoholic like just and just leave it at that (laughs) i'm not in recovery just my dad (laughs) thanks so I think it's great, though. I think it's great that he's not ashamed of that word. He's willing to, I mean, I don't even care if he explains it. I don't (laughs) care what people think of me, which is one of the benefits of uh, having gotten through recovery. But the, yeah, have we gone too far sometimes? Maybe. I know one of our kids at one point, we wanted to sit down and talk with him and he kind of looked over his shoulder at his brother and said, oh, I got to go talk to the therapist again. Mm -hmm. So... I think that little nickname that we have among the kids is not because of all the uh, scholarly uh, research that we've done. It's because uh, we want to talk about this stuff all the time and they, to the, you know, to the point where they feel like it's overkill. But I think you're right. You said it a few minutes ago. I'd rather talk too much about it than not enough. That's for sure. I'm glad that we've mentioned a couple of times that these phases overlap and that it's not a sequential do number one, then do number two. Because the sixth phase on my list is something that we've actually talked about already on this podcast. And it, it fits in, you know, in various stages of the relationship recovery. It's self-esteem rebuilding. It This, again, we, we, we already said it, but I just want to emphasize it again. It's so, so important to the recovery process for both the people as individuals to start to feel good about themselves. Sherry, I would say that our relationship is stronger now than it ever has been, including back to when we, you know, we were, before even we were newlyweds, when we were dating and we lived together and we didn't have all the baggage. I would say the relationship's much stronger now than it even was back then. And I would attribute that to the fact that you and I are stronger as individuals and less constantly leaning on each other and you know, I was a very needy, drunk, and a needy early sobriety person. I needed you to be filling my bucket. But you leaned on me quite a bit, too. And the fact that we're just kind of independent people makes it easier for us to be attracted to each other, makes it easier for us to, to trust and confide in each other, 
because we know the other person's solid. Can you react to that? Um, yeah, I think that you not being so needy and needing to glom on um, makes it easier for me to have my own opinion. Mm-hmm. Early on, as you mentioned, like when we were first together, I felt like, oh, if we didn't agree about things, and I think, I think that you made me feel a little bit more like this. Like, if we don't agree on things, then we're not the same team. Yeah. You know, if we don't agree and we aren't confiding in each other and we aren't dependent on each other, then we're not a great team. We have to be so self, you know, we can't be self-reliant, but we, you know, and can't have our own opinion. We have to be united, a united front. And there are, like... And by the way, I'm going to beat you into submission on uh, yeah, and I what grew we're up, united on. And I grew up, not you know, with a... Good, yeah. And I grew up with a single mom for most of my life. So seeing her, you know, have her own opinion and have her own interest and those sort of things, I felt like that was a good that was a good example in some ways. And I didn't see why you couldn't carry it over into relationships. I didn't want to be around you 24-7. I wanted you to go and do your own things and let me go and do my own things. And we meet up together and we do things together that we like. Because when you're bringing outside interests and I'm bringing outside interests... And you have confidence and you have fun with other people, that just makes you, I think, happier and more fulfilled. And I didn't want to be the only one making you happy. And I felt very burdened with that job. And that was making me extremely unhappy. And then when we would have drinking episodes, add that all up. I think it's very interesting. I haven't asked enough questions to know whether this is a universalism or not. But my, but my suspicion is that it is. You know, at the beginning of the relationship, from the outside, this sounds super arrogant, it looked like I was the strong one. I was the one, you know, we moved to Minnesota from Indiana University because that's where my you first job to took, yeah. took us and you were kind of following along, okay? Mm-hmm. Sounds awful to say it that way. But... In reality, you were the strong one. You were the independent one. And I think a lot of my need, the the fact that I fell into addiction is evidence of that. You know, alcohol is a a medicator. You know, if anyone can hear that um, in the background, it's starting to... uh, distract Sherry art we have an electric electronic drum set that one of our kids is in the basement practicing on so that's how you know this is a high quality overly produced (laughs) podcast uh we're just going to talk through the drumming if you can hear those little tap tap taps but the but anyway back to the point i was um self-medicating i drank because i wasn't strong i wasn't independent i was a very jealous person for instance when you and i first got together i was always curious where you were. I mean, it was before the age of cell phones. And if I couldn't track you down, I was wondering where you are and what are you doing? And you were, like you said, much more independent. You wanted to have nights out with me, but you wanted to have nights out with your friends. You didn't want us to be constantly up in each other's business. Yeah. I didn't want to be attached at the hip. Right. Because I felt like there was room for both. And part of my active addiction was dragging you down into my needy level. That's what the gaslighting is about. The manipulation is about in, in large part is you seem strong and independent still. While I know I need you more than you need me, I'm going to make you need me too. I'm going to, I'm going to make you doubt yourself. 
I'm going to fill your head with insecurities so that your self-esteem is down at the level where mine is. And it's, it's sad, but, but it's, I mean, that's kind of how it works. And so I think it's very common for a relationship that eventually becomes an alcoholic relationship to start with a strong person and a weak person and the weak person drags the strong person down. That's what happened with us. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to this recovery phase and rebuilding self-esteem, finding emotional maturity, that, that's an important thing for we as drinkers to do. I, I just wanted to say when you were finishing up that sentence about the weaker person dragging the stronger person or the more independent person down and the manipulation that happens, that is where the conversations and discussions about how I felt insecure because I didn't know how to be in a relationship because I hadn't been given a great example most of my life. Mm. And you would say, well, my parents are still together and this is, you know, so there was that like, oh yeah. So there was that piece of it. It was like, you don't know what you're talking about because you don't know. So it was that manipulation and gaslighting. Oh, she comes from a broken home and we want to avoid having a broken home. And then I felt like, yeah, I came from a broken home. I want to avoid that. So I deferred to you and what you were raised in a... The shit I was shoveling. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think that because there can be that self-doubt or insecurity, and if I had been stronger and older when we met and got together, I could be like... Yeah, but we don't have to relive your parents' life or what you think is right. We can make our own rules. But I was very willing to go along with the partner who grew up in a stable, quote-unquote, home environment. Yeah, gaslighting and manipulation, there's a reason that we do it, and we do it for years. It's because it's often effective. Yeah, so I'm just telling that, trying to say to the loved one, if you have a different upbringing but you feel good about what you're doing... Try to hold on to that and try to have that self-confidence. Say, well, we can make our own relationship. We can make up our own roles. Yeah. You know, and and I think, gosh, if I had been strong enough to say, but I don't feel like we have to be so dependent on each other. I mean, you were definitely... I wonder how... And I didn't have, like, work friends the way you did because you moved right into a job. But I wonder if that would have made any changes where I wouldn't have been as easily manipulated. I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, you were definitely dealing with a bull in a china shop. I, I, I was, um, when we talk about I was going to drag you down into my level of insecurity and lack of self-esteem, I mean, I was going to pull hard. I was, you know, I, again, sounding arrogant, but I was a good manipulator. I was a good gaslighter. That's nothing to brag about. It's nothing to be proud of. And I'm not proud of it, mm-hmm. but I was good at it. And so you were up against it. Um, but it's I think the awareness is what's important if you're if you're in a situation like that um, you know and if it's not too late maybe that's the situation you extract yourself from yeah and that's something for like our kids to understand don't don't if you're getting gaslit if you're getting manipulated it's only going to get worse yeah and that could be for even a non-addicted absolutely you know that's just some good piece of advice so the self-esteem building super important. It comes with the emotional maturity work that the alcoholic in recovery has to has to get through, has to work through. It comes from rejection of gaslighting and manipulation on the part of the loved one, and it comes from trusting your instincts over your insecurities. It's just that simple. One of the things 
that's the most concrete example of that is when a spouse, a loved one says, I can tell when he's been drinking, whether he admits it or not, whether he lies to me or not, I can tell. And then they doubt themselves. Well, he told me he wasn't drinking. If, if there's a tell, if you can tell, in our experience, in, deal, in working with lots of people, if you think he's been drinking, he's been drinking. Um, I, the tell is different for everybody, mm-hmm. but all of us drinkers have some kind of a, a tip of the, you know, a, a nod that, yes, I've been drinking, whether we're trying to hide it or not. And if you're the spouse of somebody and you can tell when they've been drinking, trust yourself. Because mm-hmm. the best thing you can do for building self-esteem and getting out of the hole that you might be in and the stuck place is to trust your instincts over your insecurities. Super important. Phase seven in the uh, relationship recovery cycle is to uh, rebuild trust. Phase seven and eight, these are the ongoing. These are the, this is going to take years and years and years. But, you know, start working toward it and hopefully it'll get incrementally better. I'm five and a half years sober and this is where we are. We are on phase seven and eight. And seven, the trust rebuilding I wrote down in my notes here, Sherry, that the, there are two components to trust rebuilding. One is time. It just takes time. And the other one is replacing bad memories with good memories. Replacing bad experiences with good experiences. And repeated good behavior <clears throat> yeah. and repeated good outcomes. Consistency. And consistency. And, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why it takes time. Because, like, for instance, you and I have had a lot of bad family vacations where I drank too much and something traumatic happened, right? Right. Or when even in your sober years, you know, you could, and I'm going to just say this, you sometimes would get aggravated with people who were drinking. Yeah. And how they when would do it in front of you in early yeah. sobriety. And, you know, don't they know the dangers of alcohol? So even just hearing what I already agree with, but just like, good God, just let me enjoy the people that yeah. are around. You know, like that negative behavior. And you had to vent, and you had to vent somewhere, but, you know, vent into the pillow. Like Absolutely. Just, so those those were things that would bring me down. But so I've ruined a lot of vacations, and so unless you are independently wealthy, you can't just immediately go on another vacation so you can have a good one to replace the bad one. Right. I mean, these are things that take years because once a year, for instance, we go to see my side of the family. Once a year, we go to see your side of the family. And... If you're only doing that once a year and it was bad the last time you did it, it's going to be another whole year before you can go and and have a good experience. And that, you know, there's so many things that are on the annual calendar. Holidays. You know, if you had three bad Christmases in a row, it's going to be years before you've had enough good Christmases to replace the bad ones. It's just how it works. Mm -hmm. I wish there was a shortcut. We can't find it. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't try. And that doesn't mean that you don't try to, hey, we've had a lot of bad Fridays. I'm going to try to make this Friday really good. I'm going to try to make it peaceful and calm. And I'm not going to get agitated. I know for many years you hated the weekends. And I never understood that because I felt like the weekends are when I can drink freely. I don't have to control my drinking didn't as have much. have re- that much responsibility with to, work. I don't have to get up in the morning. Exactly. And you hated the weekends. Well, there, there's a there's a simple one, not an easy one. But a direct opportunity. Just have put string together a half a dozen good weekends where it's peaceful and calm, and and there's no major turmoil. 
And that will start to rebuild trust because again, the trust building is all about replacing bad memories with good and doing it over time consistently. Mm-hmm. And so phase seven, that's, you know, you and I have a, made a lot of progress in phase seven. I feel, I feel very trusted, but there are still times there's something that'll trigger you and I'll realize that you don't trust me fully. And I'm not saying that to criticize you. I think you're in a good spot. I think you're where you're supposed to be. That's, I mean, there, there are consequences to alcoholism and that's one of the consequences. I still have to be not fully trusted by you because stuff pops up that triggers you. Mm. Fair? Fair. I want to go on vacation now. Yeah. I want to go make a good vacation memory. Yeah. All right. I, I think I know over. what number eight's going to be. Oh, is that why you started to look a little antsy? Yes. That's why. Yeah, because I'm right. you I? want to talk about and, intimacy. Yeah, because I want to talk about sex, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, phase eight is intimacy, rebuilding intimacy. Uh, it is the ultimate sign of self-comfort. Interestingly enough, I'm growing increasingly confident that Intimacy is not just about the bond between two people. It's about two individuals that feel so good about themselves that they carry a bunch of confidence and self-esteem into their relationship. You just rolled your eyes and tipped your head back. No, I didn't mean it like that. You really don't like to talk about this, do you? Two strong, independent individuals. But that that's, that's, what, you know, that's what's helping us to uh, develop an intimate connection that's not like it used to be, not at all. It's like it's never been. It's it's better than it's it's ever been. And um, you know, I it, it's about me understanding you, you understanding me, understanding what feels good, what wants and needs are. Um, but it's also totally about you feeling really good in your skin about yourself, about your body, about your frame of mind, and me feeling the same. And I wish I just had that cricket over the like, crowd. That I could just a cricket soundtrack over here. No, you're right. And just because I don't like to talk about it doesn't mean I don't have those things. Yes. So there. She just did a mic drop. <laughs> it's over. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I appreciate it. I mean, I guess sometimes when we do talk about intimacy on the podcast, I feel like, I wonder if listeners are like, God, this guy is just beating her down with this topic. He must talk about it all the time. I feel like you do. But, <laughs> you know, that's also sometimes I just feel like you do a lot of talking. Yeah, everyone knows that. That's unfortunate. But, but I, yes, I'm not going to stop. Strong, self-confident, you know, people coming together, feeling okay that they can trust and share what their likes and dislikes are. They can say no without feeling guilty. They can say yes without, you know, you can express your needs without putting someone else in a position of feeling guilty or like, oh, I should have and, you know. And then you, you don't feel too needy, but they don't feel too taken advantage of. And you can respect no's, 
Because that's what we missed a lot of the years was respecting the no's. I'm not interested. Or this is what I would like in correction. For this would feel better. And But it's also agreed. Everything you said. It's also building an interest on your part. Because for so many years, this wasn't something you were interested in. So it's me respecting no's. But it's also you building an interest. Yeah. And it's the convergence of that. And, you know, I'll just leave it at this. There's, this is big. This is big. This topic is big. There's more to come as far as the role that intimacy plays in relationship recovery, the role that intimacy plays in alcoholism in the first place. It's kind of the... You know the un the the part that doesn't get any attention or any conversation except for you and I when I begrudgingly gra- drag you into this conversation. Um, but I'm convinced this is much bigger than we understand it to be so far. And that's not me saying uh, that if you are the party with the lower interest level, you need to suck it up and get in the game. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that this is a big component, not just in recovery, but in the alcoholism in the first place and the, um, the solution to intimacy is the solution to a lot of things. And when I understand it better, I'll make you talk to me about it. Aren't you looking forward to that? Yes. Eight phases of relationship recovery. So to sum up, let's go back to the beginning and talk about (laughs) boundaries and detachment. You'd like to detach from this room right now, wouldn't you? Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, We're ready for you at ShoutSobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.